0: Thank you Ben and Sharon, Um, behold the kindness of our God, how he cares for us so personally, how patient he is with us, what a joy it is to be able to celebrate um, all four of you giving your lives to Christ and I am eager to see what the Lord does through you guys Ben and Sharon in this church and among the youth. All right, as we turn to the sermon this morning, would you turn in your Bibles to 1 Chronicles chapter 17? I am sure that most of you know that Mount Everest is the highest mountain on earth. It has a summit reaching 29,000 feet. And it was considered a great feat for humanity when two climbers finally reached the summit in the 1950s, after decades and decades of failed expeditions. Now, while Mount Everest towers high above the rest of the earth, it was still able to be conquered by tiny humans like us. Quite an impressive feat. Now, the focus of the mountain that we are going to climb this morning is far greater than Mount Everest. And it is so high that we will never be able to reach its summit. This morning, we are going to consider the next section in our statement of faith, which is a sermon series that we are in over the next several months. This next section is titled, Our Triune God. Now, the main question that we consider in this section is, who is God and what is he like? Who is God and what is he like? And as we look to climb this mountain of knowing God, the height of Mount Everest is just a little speck before the infinite greatness of God. I must apologize at the outset here. What, what I have prepared this morning is woefully inadequate and we might only be able to take one small measly step this morning in considering the splendor and majesty of our infinite God. But what excites me more than anything, and I hope it excites you, is that we are invited to spend an eternity of eternities climbing this mountain to see and savor the infinite greatness of our God. The verse that will set the stage for our expedition this morning is from 1 Chronicles 17, verse 20. This verse is a portion in a prayer that King David prayers in response to God making a covenant with him, promising to establish the throne of one of his descendants forever. In response, David prays a prayer of acknowledging the greatness of God, and this is an excerpt of it in this way, in Verse 20. There is none like you, O Lord. And there is no God beside you, according to all that we have heard with our ears. This confession of David's faith, a prayer, it's simple, it's clear, and it's a foundational affirmation of our faith as well. There is no God beside Yahweh. And there is no one like him. David believed this truth with all of his being. And that's why he could pray a prayer like this from Psalm 27. One thing I have asked the Lord that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. This morning, for a few moments, we have the privilege of gazing upon the beauty of our God by considering who God is and what he is like. Our focus this morning is going to be on the nature and attributes of God and specifically on those attributes of God, of who he is apart from what he has done for us, which we will get to In the weeks to come the attributes of God that have nothing apart from what he has done for us in itself is worthy of our contemplation and our adoration and his praise so this morning we're gonna spend some time on those attributes of God in our statement of faith that we typically don't spend a lot of time considering together and this is gonna be in rapid-fire fashion Uh, There's going to be attributes of God that you feel like I'm neglecting, but we will get to them as we walk through the series in our Statement of Faith. So let's get to it. The first attribute that I want to consider together is the incomprehensibility of God. The incomprehensibility of God. And I believe this is a good place to start. When we say that God is incomprehensible, we're saying two things. One, because God is infinite, he cannot be known by finite creatures unless he reveals himself to us. God would always be hidden to us if he did not reveal himself to us. And we are so thankful, aren't we, that God has freely chosen to reveal himself to us there are four specific ways in god has kindly in his mercy revealed himself to us first he has revealed himself to us through creation with its intricate design pointing us to an uncreated creator second he has revealed himself to us through the scriptures by which we can learn about god who he is and his will for our lives Third, he has revealed himself personally by entering human history in the person of Jesus Christ. And fourth and finally, he has also revealed his existence to each person's consciousness by creating us in his image so that every person, in some sense, is aware of God's existence, even though this knowledge is corrupted by sin. Now, the second thing we are saying when God is incomprehensible is that even though we can know God truly because of his revelation to us, we can never know God fully because God is infinite. Our statement of faith combines both these truths about the incomprehensibility of God in this way. It says this, in his transcendence, God is incomprehensible in his being and actions. Yet, he reveals himself such that we can know him truly and personally. This means that we can actually come to know this infinite God truly and personally, but never exhaustively. Psalm 145.3 says, As great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised, and his greatness is unsearchable. Now, I believe this attribute of God is an important place for us to start because it helps us see that statements that we make about God, while true, do not exhaust who God is. And that should humble us. Job, in his encounter, after encountering God, he says this, Behold, these are but the outskirts of his ways. And how small a whisper do we hear of him. But the thunder of his power, who can understand? Does this not cause your heart to worship? In wonder and awe of the infinite greatness of our God. I hope God's incomprehensibility is the focus of your worship of God. Next, we'll consider the holiness of God. When we think about the holiness of God, we ought to think about it in two distinct ways. The word, to be holy, in the scriptures, refers primarily to be set apart. So the holiness of God in the Old Testament highlights God's set-apartness, or God's otherness, compared to all of creation. God is not just a bigger, better, more perfect version of the best human being you could ever conceive. Rather, God as the uncreated one is in a different category altogether. So in a sense, when we talk about holiness, we don't talk about it in quite the same sense as all the other attributes of God, like his love, his goodness, his justice, his grace. Rather, we can think of the holiness of God as his beauty that arrays all of his attributes in such a way that his love is holy, his justice and wrath are holy, His goodness and grace are holy. Other, the second way scripture speaks of the holiness of God is emphasizing His moral perfection, His righteousness. God is holy so that there is no unrighteousness in Him at all. Now, when we think about the holiness of God, it ought to awaken us to see the infinite gap that separates our Creator from us ex creatures. And it also should cause us to see the infinite gap between a holy God and sinful human beings. But the holiness of God also ought to cause us to worship and delight in Him. There's a chorus that is sung by the host of heaven that I am not gonna sing, but I'm going to read. And it has been sung for ages and it will continue through all eternity. it goes like this and the four living creatures each of them with six wings are full of eyes all around and within and day and night they never cease to say holy 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 is the lord god almighty who was and is and is to come i am sorry for those of you who don't like simple songs with a lot of repetition in it In heaven, we are going to be filled with wonder and awe at the holiness of God, and we are going to join this exact same eternal chorus in heaven, singing, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Next, we'll consider the simplicity of God. The simplicity of God. I know that's a term that's not used very often today, but the the Belgic Confession, which is one of the most well-known confessions from the period of the Reformation begins this way. It says "Is We all believe in our hearts and we confess with our mouths that there is a single, simple, and spiritual being we call God. Notice these words that describe God. God is a single being, meaning there is only one God. He is a spiritual being, meaning he is not made of a material substance like a body. Then it says God is a simple being. What is that about? Well, let me tell you what it does not mean. It does not mean that God is somehow slow or or he is somehow easy to understand. When Christians have confessed through the ages that God is simple, we are saying that God is not compound or made up of parts. God is not like a Lego tower made up of different things together that make up God. This means that we should not think of God as the being that results from combining goodness with power, with justice and mercy, which would make God the sum of all of his attributes. A better way to think about God, and this is what the doctrine of simplicity says, and this is how our statement of faith says it, God is not divided into parts but his whole being includes all of his attributes. He is entirely loving. He's entirely wise, just, good, merciful, gracious, and truthful. One of the reasons this doctrine is so important is it helps us not to pit one attribute of God against another. For example, God's love against his holiness and justice. Have you ever heard people say that God is love? As if that is somehow more central to who God is compared to God's holiness and his justice? Yes, God is love, as scripture tells us, but it does not carry any more weight than true statements in scripture like God is light, 1 John 1, 5, or God is spirit, 1 John 4, 24, or God is a consuming fire, Hebrews 12, 29, or any other attribute of God. God does not just have all these attributes. God is whatever he has. Every attribute of God is identical with his essence. Now next, we'll consider the eternality, the independence, and self-sufficiency of God. Our statement of faith says this, God is eternal, independent, and self-sufficient, having a life in himself with no need for anyone or anything. When we confess that God is eternal, we are saying that there was never a time when God was not. What we are not saying is that somehow God exists Infinitely into the past and infinitely into the future. God is not like that. God's life is not marked by past, present, and future. Scripture tells us that God is the eternal I am, meaning that God is even beyond the limits of time in such a way that all of existence, past, present, and future, is one indivisible present before God. Now we as creatures bound by time cannot even grasp someone or something that exists only in the present. But God is God, and we are not, and there is no one like our God. Next, when we confess that God is independent, we mean that God is not dependent on anyone or anything for his existence. God is the only self-existent one. No one created God, Because God has life in himself, John 5, 26. And all things exist through him and for him, Colossians 1. This is hard for us to grasp because there is no other being like God. Because everything in all of creation, including us, are creatures that derive our existence from God. And we depend on God sustaining us every moment. Think about this. Every breath. Every heartbeat, every word that comes out of your mouth is dependent on God. But God Himself is dependent on no one. Similar to His attribute of independence, we also confess that God is self sufficient, meaning that He has no need for anyone or anything. Unlike God, we are creatures, we are not self sufficient as much as we like to think we are. In fact, we are very needy. We have physical needs, we need food and water. We have relational needs like friendship and community. We have financial needs, we have spiritual needs, we have all sorts of needs. God in his perfection has no needs. He is completely self-sufficient in his triune self. Now why does that matter? One implication for the doctrine of self-sufficiency is we are foolish to think that when we are worshiping God, that we are bringing something to God that he actually needs. Acts 17.25 tells us that there is, that God has no need for our service or our worship. Nothing that we do for God adds anything to God. That's a wake-up call, right? But... He invites us. He invites us to worship him and obey him so that we can come to enjoy and experience the fellowship in him. We also confess that God is immutable. By saying this, we are saying that there is no change in God's being, his purposes, or his promises. This is interesting because this means God cannot grow or diminish in any way. God cannot improve at all. Neither can he deteriorate. Both are equally impossible for him. And because God is immutable, he does not change. What does this mean for us? This means God is faithful. This means God is faithful to fulfill all of his promises to us. He cannot lie. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He's also faithful in his promise to sanctify us and to preserve us until that final day. We also confess that God is omnipresent. Our statement of faith says God is everywhere present with the fullness of his being. Now, this does not mean that God somehow permeates all of space and time, which would result in the error of pantheism. Rather, when we say God is omnipresent, we mean that all of creation exists in the immediate presence of God. Think about this, all of creation, the immensity of it, the ever-expanding universe, universe, the stars, the galaxies, the skies, all of it ever-present before him. One application for this doctrine is that it reminds us that God is always with us, even when we think or feel like we are alone. Next, we confess that God is omniscient, Our statement of faith says this, his knowledge is exhaustive, including all things actual and possible so that nothing past, present, or future is hidden from his sight. Now what's unique about God's knowledge is that it is not acquired by learning or observation. That's how we grow in knowledge, by learning and observation. But God possesses knowledge exhaustively in such a way that he knows everything about himself and all the universe he created. This implies that there is something God cannot do. God cannot learn. God cannot learn something about you, about himself, or the universe. It is impossible for God to do this since he already possesses perfect knowledge of all things. One application of this doctrine is that we cannot somehow think that we can sin and hide from God. God sees and he knows the thoughts and intentions, and he will one day bring everything we think is hidden into light, either now or on that last day. Next, we'll briefly consider the omnipotence of God, the wisdom of God, and the sovereignty of God. Our statement of faith says this, God is supremely powerful to perform all his holy and perfect will, ruling over his creation with total dominion, righteousness, wisdom, and love. In this simple statement, we confess that God is omnipotent. He can do whatever he wills to do. Nothing is too hard or difficult for him. He possesses absolute power. The wisdom of God is that attribute by which God perfectly and sovereignly guides all things in the universe according to his perfect knowledge and his perfect will. One implication for God's wisdom is that it helps us remember that God's purposes for our lives are infinitely wise. We see but a small picture of what God is doing, but God has a plan, and it is good and all wise so we can trust him. We also believe that God is sovereign. This means that God is subject to none, influenced by none. He does only as he pleases, always as he pleases. I can't believe I'm spending only one sentence per attribute. We're gonna spend more time on that next week. Finally, let's consider for the moment, for a moment, the triunity of God. When we talk about the Trinity, I want you to know that this doctrine was somehow not concocted by the early church hundreds of years after the New Testament was written. Rather, it is through the Scriptures themselves that we come to know that God is triune. When we look at the doctrine of the Trinity in the Bible, we see that the reality of the triune nature of God is revealed progressively over time through the story of redemption picture a really dark room with a dim lamp in one corner you can't see everything in the room but in fact there is a clock on the wall and there is a chair on the other side of the room but you can't see it but when you open up the windows you can finally see the clock and the chair just because you could not see the clock or the chair doesn't mean that they were not there the doctrine of, Trinity, of the Trinity is revealed in similar fashion to us. There are hints of the Trinity in the Old Testament that are finally made clear in the New Testament. The climax of God's work of redemption brings with it the climax of God's triune self-revelation. And we see that clearly in the incarnation of Christ and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Let's look at one passage, which is very appropriate since we celebrated baptisms together today. Matthew 28, 19. And we'll understand how the Trinitarian pattern in this one verse helps us with reading the Bible with a Trinitarian lens. So Matthew twenty-eight nineteen says this, and you all know this. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son, And of the Holy Spirit now the first Trinitarian pattern we see here is the affirmation of the existence of one God so the first thing is the Bible affirms that there is only one God notice the name into which we are baptized is singular it is not plural we are not baptized into the names of the Father the Son and the Holy Spirit but the name this is consistent with Deuteronomy 6 4, which says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. There is only one God. The, setter, the second Trinitarian pattern we see in this verse is the Bible identifies the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit with the one God. Now it is likely that the name here that Matthew is referring to is referencing the name of God in the Old Testament. Yahweh. So according to Matthew, the holy name of God from the Old Testament belongs to these three. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Let's look at an example of this in 1 Corinthians 8, 6. I'll just have it back here. It says, For although there may be, men, for although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us, there is one God. There is one God. The Father, from whom are all things and for whom, thing, for whom we exist, and one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. In this one verse, this text identifies the Father and Jesus Christ as the one God, and it places the Father and the Son on the Creator side of things, from whom and through whom all of creation exists. Our statement of faith says it this way, the one true God eternally exists as three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, infinitely excellent and all glorious. Each person is fully God, sharing the same deity, attributes, and essential nature. Yet there is but one God. Each person is distinct, yet God is not by this distinction divided into three parts, natures, or gods. Each person is fully God, co-equal, co-eternal. There is no hint of subordination in the three persons of God. Many heresies have risen throughout church history when this truth about God is abandoned. Now, the third Trinitarian pattern we see here is that the Bible distinguishes between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit by their relationship to one another. Notice in this baptismal formula that while the three are identified with the one God they are also distinguished from one another, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And the ways in which each of these persons relate to one another are the only ways in which they are distinguished from one another. Here's how our statement of faith describes distinctions between the persons. The Father has always existed as Father, the unbegotten fountain of all life. The Son has always existed as Son, Eternally begotten of the Father, uncreated and without beginning, of one essence with the Father. The Holy Spirit has always existed as Spirit, eternally proceeding from the Father and the Son, and of one essence with Him. The Godhead thus thus exists in perfect unity, indivisible as to the nature and substance, yet inseparably distinguished as persons who enjoy a fullness of fellowship and love. There's much more that can be said, but there is a glory to our triune God because there is none like our triune God. The final thing I want to conclude with is to say that the doctrine of the Trinity is not something that is meant for our cognitive minds to get around understanding God. But the doctrine of Trinity is central to the gospel. Without it, the gospel makes no sense at all. Our triune God has existed in an eternal mutual relationship of love between the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit long before creation. But because of his loving nature, he freely chooses to create human beings in his image with the capacity to experience the depth of communion and love that has existed in the Godhead for all eternity. So here it is. Here's how the Trinity connects to the gospel. In the gospel... The God who is Father, Son, and Spirit has reached out through the Son and by His Spirit to embrace us as sons and daughters to the end that that we might call God our Father in the Spirit of the Son. Scott Swain says this about the Trinity. In praising God's triune name, we do not praise Him as mere spectators, stunned before the magnificence of His being and works. Christian praise of God, the Trinity, is self-involving. It includes us. The God who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the author and end of all things, wills to be our Father through the Son in the Spirit. The blessed Trinity who dwells in a high and holy place, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy, wills also to dwell among us and to make us eternally blessed through union and communion with him to the praise of his glorious grace. Brothers and sisters, what an amazing God we have. Just a brief word to the youth that are here, especially to those of you who the Lord has saved at a young age. You have the privilege of starting this expedition of growing in the knowledge of god early many others did not have this privilege of knowing god at a young age those of you who are baptized put your backpacks on now dive deep into the scriptures and come to know this triune god for everyone else i hope in this small step that we took in our expedition to consider who god is and what he is like maybe you can say with a deeper confidence and delight along with David, there is no one like you, O Lord. And there is no God besides you according to all that we have heard with our ears. Amen.